Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, thanks so much for being here. I'm Tom Cunningham, the Deputy Director of the Global Energy Center. And on behalf of Ambassador Morningstar, who will be right in, I want to thank you all for joining us for today's panel discussion. At the Global Energy Center, we are devoted to addressing the unprecedented change that is defining the relationship between energy and society. We want to build a global community that is capable of dealing with geopolitical, economic, and environmental issues that arise. Today's topic is UAVs in the energy sector, not drones. And it's about their application and associated regulatory issues. Um, just a glance at the list of uh, participants in the audience today also demonstrates how, how much interest this issue garners in terms of the breadth of entities represented, different players in various sectors, technology niches, and policy circles. I think one reason why UAVs are so interesting is that their potential is massive and exactly how they will integrate into our daily lives, into societal activity, and into the physical world remains uncertain given that potential. And it's also become clear that these UAVs are incredibly useful for a huge number of reasons, a huge number of functions. Um, but what is not clear is what frameworks need to be in place to regulate their activity and how such regulations would predetermine and uplift or possibly undercut their potential. So looking at this question of the potential of UAVs in the context of energy, I think is also particularly insightful because energy itself is so cross-cutting. Um, it's holistic across our society and it is hard to understand the scope to which UAVs could make a difference and how companies, policymakers, and regulators tackle this question and let the technology flourish while also ensuring adequate safety, security, and privacy. But as you can tell, I'm stuck in the abstract because I obviously have a weak grasp of this issue. Um, and I'll, so I'll get off the stage and let the experts do their thing. But I do hope today we'll shed light on what level of benefit uh, UAVs can bring to energy companies, what the regulatory context is, and what are the challenges going forward, including at the domestic and international level. I want to say a special word of thanks to our senior fellow, Cynthia Quarterman. She's the only person that I know of to have run two separate federal regulatory agencies. That's correct, right? Um, big deal, and we're lucky to have our expertise on energy-related re infrastructure issues here at the Council. Um, you may have actually heard her speaking on the Diane Reem show yesterday. She astutely, sorry, you told me, she told me not to say that. She astutely <laughs> saw the uh, domestic and international policy implications of this issue, and she developed this event single-handedly, so thanks a lot. Um, Cynthia will introduce our fellow participants, each of them very distinguished and representing a unique perspective. Thank you all for being here as well. Um, Cynthia will moderate the discussion and field some questions from the audience. I'm eager to hear what the, how, the discussion, how the discussion goes. Please note that the event is being streamed live. It's on the record, and you can follow online at AC Energy on Twitter. Thanks a lot. Go for it. Thanks, Tom, for that introduction. It's a good thing I was on Diane Ream yesterday, so I'm used to the unexpected here. Um, we have with us today a very distinguished panel of experts on using drones. I know some of our panelists won't like me calling them that, but it, it's easiest for me. Um, or unmanned aerial vehicles or aircraft systems in the energy space. Uh, the Federal Aviation, or FAA, in August issued a final rule on the use of small UASs or UAVs. We're joined here today by Dexter Lewis, to my left. He's a senior engineer 
and the UAS program lead at Southern Company. Uh, Southern has the distinction of being the first electric utility to go in for a what is called a Rule 333 exemption and got it granted uh, in, I think, March of 2015. So they really are on the cutting edge of this issue from an electric utility perspective. Uh, next to Dexter is John O'Brien, who is the focus area manager for facilities and operational reliance at Chevron Energy Technology Company. Chevron also has been doing a great deal with respect to UAVs, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And we're very glad to have him with us today. Last but not least, we have Rob Pappas, the Special Rules Coordinator, Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration at the Federal Aviation Administration here in the United States. He has really been responsible for figuring out how to deal with this new technology from the government's perspective here in the US. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here today and all of us. I want to start with John and Many of us here use the term drone. We either think of a toy or we think of the scene in the eye in the sky or Amazon flying packages uh, to us through our neighborhoods. Can you enlighten us a little bit on what you are doing with this technology in the oil and gas industry as of now? So yes, uh, you know, I, I, I avoid the word drones because all the vehicles that we operate currently have a human intervention capability. So, um, you know, they, they're not drones. And, and I think that's very important for the public to understand that we're not just letting these things loose. Um, it's evolving technology, uh, but there are a huge amount of applications starting at the environmental spectrum. Uh, we started some time ago with monitoring turtle tracking on beaches without disturbing uh, the, the wildlife itself to ensure you know, that we understand our impact or hopefully lack of impact uh, on the greater environment. Uh, energy loss surveys using infrared, um, physical inspections, offshore platforms, uh, in refineries, flare towers, places where it's expensive to give access to people, or more importantly for us, where we put people in harm's way by doing it so we can reduce the risk. Uh, we've been doing a lot of experimental work around uh, emissions monitoring uh, using unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. Uh, we're trying to push the envelope on where's the next rules set in and, and, and the gaps that we're currently restricted in. And also looking at the impacts of what happens to our infrastructure if others fly these items into them? You know, so it's a two-way street for us. Um, so th there is a huge potential. And of course, the other big thing now is we generate a lot of data. So how do we manage the data? <laughs> Always. Dexter, you guys are on the bleeding edge. What have you been doing in Southern Company from the perspective of uh, UAV usage? Sure. Thank you, Cynthia. Our use cases, honestly, are very similar to the use cases that John talks about. Um, as a large electric utility and serving several states, we've got infrastructure that's several thousands of miles long in very rural areas. And to maintain that infrastructure uh, so that it's healthy enough to maintain a, a good reliability for our customers, it requires frequent inspection. And right now, our most economic method is to use helicopters. 
Well, there's certain risk with operating a helicopter that close to the wires environment or near vertical infrastructure. And so we have a drive to look at, can we use unmanned aircraft to do that safer and cheaper and honestly do a better inspection? So it's looking at our traditional inspection methods, as well as looking at what are some new opportunities where we've previously never used aerial photography before. One of them that stands out is storm restoration. So after a storm comes through, think tornadoes in the southeast, um, it's very important to get our power back on as quickly as possible for our customers. Our current process is honestly a boots on the ground process, but we see using unmanned aircraft, we could speed that process up in terms of identifying the damage and the extent of it. So it's those traditional inspection methods where we're looking at can we just do it better with a drone, uh, an unmanned aircraft, excuse me. Uh, these new opportunities that we see that we could do within the existing rule framework of part 107. And then ultimately, what are these futuristic designs of can we have a, an unmanned aircraft that sits in a, a substation or at a plant and autonomously once a day does an inspection of that infrastructure to make sure that it's healthy. So that's a little bit further down the road, Rob, so we're not doing that today, but we certainly have those on our radar. Now, Rob, you've seen the waterfront, being the man here in Washington, getting all these requests for exemptions. Are there other uses that you have seen come to you in the energy industry that these gentlemen may not have uh, covered so far? Um, I, I think the items that have been covered uh, from an energy sector standpoint uh, kind of cover that waterfront. Uh, I think part of the challenge for uh, a regulatory agency such as the FAA uh, relative to a new technology like this, especially one that really has a very low entry cost. So they're fairly low cost to capitalize and start using, uh, but they're almost innumerable uh, applications throughout all kinds of industries. And uh, part of the challenge for the FAA is keeping up with companies like Chevron and Southern and other companies who are really innovating. And it's not just large companies, there's many, many small uh, operators who are just really innovating in so many ways. And it's a, it's a real challenge for, for us, but, but a good challenge, one that we're really enjoying, is how to get the regulatory framework in place to uh, you know, be able to enable and facilitate these types of operations, and at the same time, you know, try not to be uh, too overly burdensome in the process, so it's, it's quite a challenge. Well, you mentioned something that I really wanted to, to key in on. You say all, many industries have these issues. Are there things that are unique to the energy industry with respect to the use of UAVs, or will these issues be universal across all companies? What do you gentlemen think? I, I'll just start, if, if mm -hmm. you don't mind. Uh, I, I think. Um, so I, I think the energy industry, uh, you know, is not entirely unique. However, I, I think it's representative of a, uh, a grouping of uh, operators that need to, you know, operate over very long distances, operate for the most part, not, this is not entirely, but for the most part within uh, well-defined corridors of right-of-ways. Um, and those distances uh, are not unique to the electrical industry or the pipelines. Uh, you know, we're, as many of you know already, we're working with the railroad industry on a pathfinder with BNSF, which is really looking at beyond visual line of sight. So how do we, how do we facilitate those kinds of operations? Uh, 
And that's what we're doing a lot of work with, and we continue to, to, to work with uh, other energy industries to, to, to see you know, how we can work together to develop equipment, to develop standards and uh, uh, operating procedures that will make these operations safe and effective. No, John or Dexter? I, I think Rob hit it pretty on the head. You know, the railroad industry is certainly one that's very similar. Mm -hmm. Anytime you've got long vertical infrastructure that you're trying to monitor um, in defined corridors, so he's right there. One thing that is a little unique is that um, our message seems to resonate very well with our customers and our, um, our, our state regulators of, look, I know there's a lot of concerns with using unmanned aircraft, but we're trying to use them to keep our infrastructure healthy, which in turn returns immediate value to keeping our customers happy and keeping the lights on. That's same with the railroad. You know, they're looking to make sure that their tracks are in good order to make sure that there's no issues there. Um, <clears throat> I think that's unique. And then also, it's unique in the, in the fact that we're operating over such important infrastructure with you know, our trained professionals where we're working with the FAA and say, we, we want to do this, we need to operate this close to this infrastructure, while at the same time we're trying to determine what's the limit, if any, that should be out there with other operators that maybe should not be that close to that infrastructure. And it's, it's, it's a unique position of how do you make that argument of, you know, we have the expertise to do it safely, but you know, the, the kid who gets one from Christmas Shouldn't, shouldn't come within X number of feet from our assets. And then how do you enforce that? That's, it, it's kind of a, a difficult issue there. Yeah, I think I agree. I think the advantage we have to some part is that this is an extension of something we already do. We already have aviation operations, whether they be fixed wing or, or rotary aircraft, and we've had policies, procedures, and, and experience. So we, we, we're moving. It, it's not a revolution. It's, it's an evolution from, from the safety uh, bubble environment. And um, that, that should give us some extra confidence that you know, we can build upon. Um, I think other industries who have not had that uh, you know, that's their big challenge of how they understand and, and fit in and establish their procedures. Um, and, and the big thing I think is as well is that, um, you know, I was, I got to DC last night and I was walking around, you know, stretching my legs and uh, watching rush hour traffic and making the comparison of just look at the intersection gridlock that occurs. Um, and now we have two or three million unmanned aircraft vehicles in, in the airspace. Um, just like our road system and, and our traffic control, we are going to have to sit down and who that is may be debatable, but there are going to have to be certain rules and areas that are no-go areas unless you're the owner or the operator. Um, and, and I think the public will expect that of of the energy industry and, and the regulatory and, and, and rulemaking everywhere that there is some control, you know, that otherwise we're going to get to permanent gridlock again. Yeah. <laughs> when I think of the energy industries, I think of the spaghetti-like assets that many of you have, whether it be pipelines or utility lines, and I guess railroads are similar in that. Rob, can you tell us more about what you're doing with Pathfinder and how it might be applicable to the energy industry? 
Yes, the, uh, the Pathfinder program is something that uh, Administrator Huerta uh, kicked off um, about a year and a half ago, a little more than that. Um, and it was really, you know, we had developed a, a, a list of, of challenge areas relative to UAS integration. Uh, and within the FAA, we went through a series of exercises to prioritize those. Uh, you know, we're very much in a crawl, walk, run type of evolution uh, with all this. And so uh, for our first Pathfinders, all the Pathfinders were, uh, you know, a challenge in, in, in each way. Um, but we tried to pick uh, a number of Pathfinders that weren't like the ultimate challenge. So we picked three areas. One that we're working on with CNN is to operate over people. Uh, we are working with a company called Precision Hawk on an area of beyond visual line of sight that we refer to as extended visual line of sight, which I won't get into, but uh, that's uh, very important to uh, operators that need to operate over larger areas. Agriculture is a, uh, a, a one that comes to mind there. Uh, Pathfinder 3 was beyond visual line of sight. And we started, we partnered with um, uh, BNSF uh, to explore that area. Um, it's been a really uh, very productive partnership. Uh, BNSF has done a tremendous amount of work. And the main areas that we're exploring that are really, you know, the areas that apply to the energy sector as well is you know, you need to have an effective command and control system over these long distances. You have to maintain that positive control over your aircraft. Um, you need to, what I call station keep, but you need to have some navigational performance. You want to stay in your corridor or near it, uh, you know, within some limit. Uh, and the other challenge really is we are integrating into existing airspace. That existing airspace is open to many different types of aviation participants. Uh, and so the area surveillance uh, is really proving to be one of the areas that's uh, a real challenge. And uh, many different industries right now and the U.S. test sites uh, that we have, the seven test sites we have across the country, uh, are looking at both ground-based solutions to uh, conducting surveillance of the airspace along these routes, along this infrastructure, um, as well as looking at new technologies that are emerging relative to airborne uh, uh, surveillance. So some type of system that would be on the UAS itself to surveil that airspace. Uh, you know, one of the really interesting things with these networks is that you know, risk varies as you travel and transit through these networks. Uh, at one point, the risk may be very, very low. At another point, maybe a terminus point, the risk uh, gets relatively high. Um, trying to figure out what are the appropriate mitigations uh, as you transit through these systems, that's, that's something we're looking very carefully at. Well, when I think about pipelines, having just recently run the pipeline safety program, I think about all that right away that gets flown by either a fixed aircraft or by helicopters for you know, inspection on an annual basis. And it seems like a great opportunity to really um, improve actually the oversight of that. Are the companies thinking about that? How far along are we on that use of the UAFs, UAVs, and UASs. 
So, so it's a prime target. It, it's it's exactly what we need to do, and it's going to add great value and, and offer uh, to the wider stakeholders an improvement in our performance and the national infrastructure. And there's at least one gentleman in the audience right now who uh, knows we're working on a joint industry initiative with one of the test areas, uh, and the prime aim of that work is to be able to demonstrate to people like uh, the FAA and other international regulators that um, beyond line of sight, we've tried, we've tested, we've understood. Um, and we also know that uh, simultaneous operations is something we encounter a lot in our industry, both on the pipeline network and offshore. So the, the physical protection of the space around us and the interaction where our pipelines cross a, an electrical line or a railroad to make sure that we're not all flying unmanned aerial vehicles into each other is something that we're going to have to uh, prove uh, and, and also the other aviation operators in the space. But um, I mean, the first one is just the ability to respond immediately to an emergency instead of our past where sometimes people have rushed in, the emergency services have rushed in and we put people at risk. The idea that we could launch a UAV, we could get data and we could direct ground people more effectively before they put themselves in harm's way, you know, would, would be great. And uh, because we don't know where those incidents can occur, beyond line of sight becomes a great advantage. But just the regular get out of the helicopters, get out of the fixed wing, we would be able to do these more frequently. We would be able potentially to do them at lower altitude, fly different mission packages and sensors. So, yeah, I mean, we're very committed as an industry, I think, to trying to push the envelope there, but clearly recognize that we have to demonstrate that we can do it robustly, reliably, and mm -hmm. safely. What about the electric utility industry, uh, Dexter? Are you doing a similar sort of pilot project on transmission lines or? Sure, yeah, so um, since our 333 in March of 15, we've done over a thousand flights looking at business cases all throughout our business units. Um, primarily though, focusing on transmission because again, that is a kind of one-to-one -one comparison of aerial inspections. Um, we have cost per miles, miles per hour of our traditional method, be it helicopters. And we have done extensive analysis and using an unmanned aircraft and kind of a lineman cr crew with a UAS uh, capability. And I'll say that this final rule that came out in August 27 makes that a lot easier because we previously didn't have a bunch of linemen that were pilots, but it's a lot easier to have them become a, um, a remote pilot, get their certificate. So I, I think we're close. We're not there. I, I would say in 2017, though, we've got some specific R&D that's going to make it a lot closer, and I think we can get there in mm -hmm. terms of replacing our helicopter inspections for routine work. Um, to John's point, anything that's emergency driven is usually has a, a tight timeline associated with it, and you're probably going to need those beyond line of sight operations to mm -hmm. make that feasible. Now, just to close out uses, you're talking a little bit about things in R&D, and I don't want to touch any trade secret issues, but what are some of the pie in the sky thinking for uses of these drones beyond what you're doing right now? So, well, I, I don't necessarily consider it pie in the sky. I mean, we're working pretty hard on this uh, and hope to have a solution next year. But if you look at the commercially available aircraft that are, you know, a thousand bucks, five hundred bucks, 
they're pretty capable aircraft where they will pretty much fly themselves. And again, you do have the remote pilot there serving as emergency situations, but you could hit a button and have an aircraft do a complete inspection of a transmission tower. So I foresee that if we can have that set up so that if you pull up to a tower to do an inspection as a lineman, you don't have to necessarily have the skill set to be able to do a very comprehensive inspection. You just have to be able to hit a button as well as have your remote pilot certificate to make any emergency responses should an aircraft come in your airspace. But that's doable. And that's doable with available technology today. It's just a coding and a software project. So that's where we're focusing next year. Yeah, I think we're probably in the same place. I, I tend to talk about you know, operating unmanned area vehicles now as two items. The actual vehicle side, there's a huge industry out there. The military spent a ton of money, the major aviation people. The vehicles are pretty much available um, uh, for, for a lot of our applications. Uh, the, the areas we're doing R&D is procedures and practice, and, and then what I tend to call the mission package. What do you want to get out of the flight? So that's the sensors, whether it be cameras, infrared, methane mapping, CO2 mapping, anything you want. So the growth for us is, is a lot around the mission package. And then what do you do with the data? Because flying the unmanned aerial vehicle and gaining the data gives me absolutely nothing at all. It's the decisions I make based on the data that are important and how it improves what we do. And, and as we generate more data, we need different systems, algorithms, pattern recognition, digital image correlation to go through those thousands of images or hours of video footage because humans are just going to get bored and they're going to miss stuff. So that, that for me is the growth area um, that, that we're working on and targeting. Um, and for the bigger operators, that's you know, where, where we see it. For, for smaller companies, that's what they're going to look to the industry to do as well. Don't just give me a video image. I actually need something I make a decision on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Rob, anything you can share with us that you've heard about that might be of interest? No, I, th I think they've summed it up uh, okay. pretty well uh, relative to pie and sky. Of course, CFA has its own pie and sky, and, um, <laughs> you know, that's to be able to, you know, to, again, facilitate these types of operations. So, uh, you know, when we, uh, you know, contemplate the aircraft, sure, you, you know, the technology is there. Uh, mm -hmm. These aircraft are quite remarkable in their capabilities. Uh, but... You know, as we dive into these areas of uh, greater complexity, especially beyond visual line of sight, we are you know, talking many hundreds of miles per, per operation uh, in these cases. Um, you know, the, the, the relative safety hazard uh, expands. So when we talk about these aircraft, we really need to be thinking about, you know, what are the airworthiness standards? Uh, many of those don't exist today. Um, and so that's, that's one of our pie-in-the-sky needs uh, that we, you know, continue to talk with the, uh, the community about is, you know, getting those standards in place, um, uh, looking at other operational requirements that uh, will be necessary relative to these types of operations, uh, and just, um, you know, safely integrating these into an existing airspace with all those users. So there's a lot of moving parts that go here. 
uh, and that have to be coordinated. And uh, so that's the pie in the sky that, that we're working on. Well, that's a so. perfect segue to the second thing I want to ask about, which are, what are the challenges to this new technology? I'm sure there must be safety, privacy, and national security. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing and you're facing as you try to implement this? Uh, so so the, the, there is a, a wide range of them. I mean, obviously, if you're going to do wide infrastructure and you're flying over the public, uh, there's an inherent uh, sort of stakeholder engagement with the wider of what, what, are, you, what are you taking of me and what are you using it for and, and, and why? Um, so, so that comes in. Um, as you fly low-level missions over things like refineries and chemical plants, a new one comes in for the vehicle uh, manufacturer space of the vehicle itself might actually be an ignition source in a hydrocarbon release situation. So a lot of uh, people now we're starting to say in those areas we're now looking for vehicles that are certified in compliance with hazardous area certification, which is very limited currently around the world. So. Um, low-level flights around and in infrastructure uh, such as hydrocarbon processing plants uh, will provide a different challenge. When we move offshore, it's a different space again. Um, of course, we're in a more controlled environment away from the public, but we have weather conditions and so on. And again, long distances from, from potential launch sites and recovery sites. Um, so there, there, I believe there are a lot of challenges and we need to be open and transparent. A lot of the data is currently being recorded, um, but it's probably being recorded from a higher altitude and with fixed platforms, so maybe people aren't aware that it's there. But yeah, if you're going to be flying over neighborhoods and so on, people are going to be concerned about who's doing what. It's just natural that there's an inquisitiveness, and um, I think you know, there's going to need to be outreach and understanding with the community partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think John hit hit most of them. Um, on a on a simpler response, it's just we get very excited in the technology and caught up in the can you use a, an unmanned aircraft? And sometimes we forget to ask, should you use an unmanned aircraft? Mm -hmm. You know, we have traditional inspection processes that we've been using for the last century to maintain our infrastructure, and if binoculars from the ground work well and are the cheapest, safest, fastest solution, just because you could fly an unmanned aircraft, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's finding those, really the characteristics of the applications that return value, again, in either cost, efficiency, or, or safety, and communicating that to our large employee bases as they start integrating this technology so that they do it properly. Mm -hmm. Rob? I mean, the FAA is responsible for the civil aviation, uh, the national airspace, including promoting safety. I mean, some of the issues that arise here, are they really within FAA's bailiwick? Or are there other federal agencies or other agencies out there that have a role to play in this? And are they playing that role? Yes, there are many agencies that have a, a, a role to play. And, um, uh, you know, I think one of the areas that uh, has, has really risen, uh, especially through our last uh, reauthorization of 2016, Section 2209, 
where uh, that legislation has asked the Department of Transportation and the FAA to look at uh, critical infrastructure uh, throughout our country and what steps may be necessary to uh, be able to uh, you know, control the use of, of unmanned aircraft near or you know, over those types of facilities. Uh, so that's one area that, um, uh, you know, there are many agencies that, that, that play a role in that, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Department of Defense, uh, you know, FBI, uh, you know, other law enforcement agencies, not just at the national level, but also at the, the state and, and local levels. Uh, so that's one area. Uh, you know, uh, even within these types of operations supporting the energy sector, uh, you know, we're working very closely with Department of Defense because when you get into these very long stretches of infrastructure, you know, they transit through uh, restricted operating areas that the military controls. Uh, so even in our work with BNSF, we are uh, negotiating, deconflicting, whatever you want to call it, with uh, some of the local military facilities in the New Mexico area that they have rail tracks that, that transit through. Uh, and as we contemplate these uh, operations really expanding uh, nationwide, that will be something that, you know, needs to be looked at at that national type of level. How do you make that a routine uh, type of process? Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a couple of examples. Uh, we're also working, uh, not so much related to this, but in some ways, some of your facilities uh, transit very close to um, airports. And so uh, we've also been asked through legislation, Section 2206, to look at airport security, uh, surveillance, uh, you know, what types of technologies are there to do effective surveillance for UAS. Uh, and so we're working with many of the agencies to, you know, to really look at that and coordinate that, gets into privacy issues. And, you know, for me, something that you know, is a real challenge is when uh, they start talking about countermeasures, what countermeasures are. You know, I, I kind of look at the FAA as a, kind of a doctor, the Hippocratic Oath, right? We, we're there to save lives and uh, do no harm. Uh, and I think in terms of aviation, you know, the idea of implementing a countermeasure to bring an aircraft down uh, in some way is, is a difficult thing <laughs> to, to think about. So certainly we're, we're also working with law enforcement agencies and others to, uh, to kind of sort through when it comes to the countermeasures part, how do we, how do we deal with that? That's not a simple, not a simple uh, John or question. Dexter, have you had any interaction with any other federal agencies other than the FAA to, to, to deal with some of these national securities or critical infrastructure issues? Some at the state level. Um, You've seen some state-level legislation come up with uh, protecting or, or having what you can and can't use an unmanned aircraft for and trying to really, I mean, they're, they're, they mean well. Um, and we usually have some critical infrastructure language in there, but it kind of gets honestly difficult when it's a, a federal asset and a state legislation trying to regulate operations over it and private property isn't well-defined. so. More at the state level, though, um, and then the uh, the NATF with their uh, privacy, accountability, and transparency proposed. Um, well, I guess not law, but just recommendations. We we supported that. 
Yeah, I think that that's true. There's been um, a, a lot of, I think, interaction with with those who've um, obviously been concerned about privacy. Other agencies um, uh, in in offshore, it has been a, a dialogue with a number of agencies because you know if if your if your platform's in the 12 mile limit, who governs? If it's outside the 12 mile limit, then you know so Coast Guard and uh, Department of Homeland Security have a, a role to play and, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, all of those, I think, have to be worked out. Uh, and they're going to come up because e each application sometimes has a, a unique foible that you have to work around. Um, and, and an onshore pipeline and, and something that's 200 miles in the Gulf of Mexico obviously have a completely different paradigm as to the risk level and also who controls and is it now airspace or in some cases you know with deep water platforms you know department of homeland security controls who goes out there so you know you end up working with multiple um regulatory bodies and and, and trying to drive alignment but that's not unique to unmanned aircraft systems we, we've worked that for many years on on many particular uh, items and issues so um, but I think it's great for the dialogue to to be going on and for the, the federal and the state agencies to maybe be coming together to try and provide a one-stop conversation place <laughs> if that was ever possible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now Rob you finished your 107 small UAS rulemaking are you done or is there a lot more coming? I mean, I, I hear discussion of the beyond line of sight issues. Are there other issues that are hanging out there that are going to continue on at, with additional rules or exemptions? Or what do you think? Right. So uh, clearly, we're far from done. <laughs> we have very innovative people uh, that that keep keep prodding us and and uh, remind us that we're far from from done. Um, and I think uh, even within Part 107, uh, you know, uh, the, the fact that um, there were so many waiverable provisions within Part 107 was sort of a, uh, a preview of uh, already what the FAA uh, was contemplating and thinking about. So um, we've had a rulemaking team uh, that has been looking at operations over people. Uh, and we are hopeful that uh, before the end of this calendar year, so within uh, not too many weeks now, that there will be a notice of proposed rulemaking uh, that will be issued um, for operations over people. Um, within the FAA, we are also exploring uh, some of the other waiverable provisions of Part 107 and looking at them from the perspective of how can we make them just a regular part of a regulation so uh, that uh, a proponent would not have to come in and, and seek a waiver? One of the things that we've, we've learned uh, over the years through certificates of authorization relative to airspace, uh, through the Section 333 mechanism for obtaining uh, uh, regulatory exemptions, uh, paperwork is really hard. <laughs> it's, you know, even when it's easy, it's hard. Uh, it takes time. Uh, it's very costly for the proponent to, you know, file all this paperwork, and it's very, very costly for the FAA to 
have to go through all this and do the assessments, do the safety assessments uh, in terms of exemptions, go through uh, quite rigorous assessments before making a decision to, to grant relief to regulations. On the COAs relative to certificates of authorization for airspace, uh, other than Class G, flying under Part 107 today, uh, to fly in any kind of controlled airspace, you need to uh, apply for an authorization. Um, we're getting quite a few of those, and again, they're, they're very costly. So in addition to just working uh, uh, regulations to uh, make these and recognize these as more routine and, and provide the basis and framework uh, for making them routine, we also work on tools. Uh, so we've had a, an application out for several years now, uh, Know Before You Fly, uh, which is really aimed at uh, you know, a small UAS and even uh, hobby and recreation type operations where you can uh, just turn your iPhone on and uh, it'll see where you are, it'll look things up and it'll basically give you a green, yellow, red type of indication about uh, operating in that area. Uh, so we're also looking at tools that'll make it easier for uh, operators to uh, get uh, airspace authorizations. So we're looking at tools where that would, I don't want to say fully automate it, but, but make it much more electronic and, and make it more of a, just a quick transaction with the FAA. So, so no, we're, we're far from being done. There's a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 107 in many ways picks some low-hanging fruit, and I, I think it was right on in what it was doing because it's enabled just a tremendous amount of operations. But now we're at the point of uh, rolling up our shirt sleeves and sharpening our pencils and working with really smart people in the private sector to really figure out how to do these more challenging uh, operations. John and Dexter, did you miss anything you'd like to see done for the energy industries? No, I mean, I, I think the way your, your question was tailored, I, I go back to the crawl, walk, run, you know, the, the 333 process was allowed us to get out there and start crawling, but it certainly had its limitations that um, we didn't like. But I, I applaud you in 107, you did a really good job. And so, you know, I understand that that next hurdle of, of beyond 107, besides just the waverable things, you know, the beyond line of sight, the autonomous, that's, that's a big challenge. It's not easy to solve. And so we look forward to the collaboration to, to help support it. As a former regulator, let me say that's a high praise coming from uh, an industry. Congratulations I, on that. I'll, I'll just add to that. Uh, so Section 333 was a really awesome, uh, you know, kind of laboratory. And, uh, and it, I, I was really, uh, I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to, to lead that project. Um, and it was a laboratory, so we did a lot of experimenting. Uh, and a lot of what we did in 333 was really informing uh, really what evolved into 107. But, you know, as 107 was evolving, uh, you know, you can't reach too far, you, you know, within Section 333 uh, when you have a rule that may go out for public comment and come back with a lot of, you guys are crazy, we're opposed to this, and then we got to ratchet back when we've already uh, perhaps uh, approved something through a, a grant of exemption. So. So the 333s, uh, although I think they were quite liberal in some ways, uh, I can understand <laughs> from an operator perspective that uh, in other ways they were probably looked at as being quite restrictive. So, uh, <laughs> but we got there together. Fair enough. So. John, you have anything there? Uh, I think we've got to be fair all around. This technology is moving at such a pace. I mean, I, I, I get 
endless calls and emails and a week, uh, the FAA must get it by a much greater volume and, uh, and, and it's hard to keep track. And um, we, we've dealt with other regulators in other parts of the world. And um, there hasn't been a lot of difference, I think, in the approach, uh, particularly amongst those nations that have a, a very advanced airspace control system. Uh, in, in some countries, you know, they're still not even going to talk about us as, as industries using the technology. So, um, of course, we never get everything we want, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think we've progressed fairly well in, uh, in North America, and, um, yeah, we'll still be pushing them on the envelope. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they know that. To, and, um, but, but the one thing we have to ensure is the, the biggest problem, you can kill a technology by a, a real early mishap. Number of technologies I've seen over the years, and people still today tell me, oh, 20 years ago we tried that and it didn't work. Well, it's still the death knell for the technology mm -hmm. 20 years later because those people haven't retired or, or moved on. And, and the fact that, you know, 20 years has gone by and the technology's changed is a barrier. So the last thing we want is to move so fast that we have a major issue that, you know, brings the portcullis down, uh, you know, on, well, we're not going to allow any use of them because of this one incident and we, we spend another 10 years trying to... Uh, draw back from that. So, yeah, there's frustration about pace and regulation and that. They're always going to be from people. But I think we have to balance that by we can also make a big mistake and, and then delay it even further. So, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that uh, we could have done that much better than we've done so far. John, you mentioned... Two good ones. That's, yeah. <laughs> you may have to market them and, and keep them. <laughs> John, you mentioned some other countries. What are some of the other countries doing with respect to regulating UAVs? And is there something we can learn from them in the United States? And maybe, Rob, you can address that as well. So I think there has been international collaboration. You know, there's been sharing amongst the global aviation authorities and so on. Um, we've worked with the United Kingdom CAA. Um, they've been a little bit nimbler than the FAA, but then again, I come from there and it's a smaller country. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, but, but not a lot of difference in terms of the expectations and the rules. Uh, France seemed to get very liberal very quickly about um, approving who could fly UESs and so on. Um, Australia has taken a very pragmatic approach, very similar to the UK and the USA. Um, uh, there are other countries that we've already had discussions with and, um, you know, just concern from security services and military is virtually shutting down the concept of uh, commercial uh, use. So they're, they're really hard uh, to roll back with. But <coughs> yeah, in, in principle, and I think uh, one of your colleagues said this morning, they've just seen the EU uh, uh, rulemaking that I think came out today. Um, that I was, I was there a, a couple of weeks ago uh, discussing. Um, you know, that's taken them time. You know, they, they, despite they want to be one union, you know, all the countries went off and did a bit 
differently themselves and some people were calling their colleagues in other countries of, so what do you allow oh well maybe we'll adopt that or oh, i don't like that you know so, so it's taken the eu as well um time to come out and knowing the eu there's probably like three years before they're even uh, uh, applicable in waiting period or whatever um type thing so um uh you know we we everybody's working it but it, it technology is moving <coughs> fast So I'll, I have to admit, uh, international, you know, I have my hands full just dealing with domestic <laughs> issues with U.S. integration. So uh, international is not an area that, that uh, I have any, you know, particular uh, uh, expertise in. Uh, what I would say is that um, the U.S. integration office at the FAA, we have a, a separate division, uh, an international division. Uh, it's, it's being led by uh, Tricia Stacy, who uh, was one of our liaisons over in Brussels, uh, and came back to the U.S. sometime last year, and she's now heading up that area. Uh, what I can say is we're very engaged with ICAO. We're very engaged with JARIS, which is an international rulemaking uh, body, um, and uh, you know, quite interested in, in harmonization and you know, keeping things together. Uh, I think uh, you know, when you think about UAS, um, there are many, many manufacturers of these. Uh, types of technologies, a, a lot of subcomponents to get manufactured and designed all over the world. And uh, I think to some degree, uh, there are efficiencies that could be, uh, you know, obtained by ensuring that uh, our standards, our requirements, uh, you know, do harmonize to a, a degree that some of these technologies uh, are uh, interoperable, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the world, so. Well, I understand that the international Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, is in the midst of beginning to put together rules for or recommended practices, I think they call them, for uh, UAVs, UASs, except they call them something entirely differently there. Um, so they're the very first stages. And I'm wondering if any of the energy industry folks were involved in that, since they don't usually you know, have an involvement in the ICAO mechanism, if you've started to think about what happens there, because history can tell us that IAKO adopts recommended practices that pretty much all the countries then harmonize across and there may be distinct uh, issues that relate to the energy industry um, that come up there and you may not know about it I mean, if you don't have representation. Are you aware of that? Are you involved at all? I um, am not. I'll refer <laughs> to John. Yeah. Um, to be quite honest, I, I'm not so certain we are. Um, uh, directly as energy operators, um, I, I have seen and, and had conversations with uh, some, some consulting groups who um, are engaged at that level. So um, I may be wrong. There's bound to be somebody out there in our industry that knows more than me. Um, but um, uh, it's probably, you might find that some of our aviation groups may have engaged at some level. I'm not aware of it. I do know of a major um, US-based consultant that we talk to a lot who has been engaged at that level. And um, certainly from my perspective, that's, that's probably where I'm getting my information and input at the moment. But um, it's probably not something that we've strategized and, and, and made a conscious effort. 
but uh, maybe somebody out there watching the YouTube will, will write to me and tell me, no, you're wrong, and, and uh, I'll get an email and a contact <laughs> so I can be better informed. <laughs> Cynthia, we, we've talked about a number of, uh, so we've talked about UAS, UAV, drones, and I believe in the ICAO uh, lexicon, it's RPAS, RPAS, Remotely Piloted Aircraft System, so. <laughs> I know it's something with an we, R. Yes. So I guess we're, we're maybe a, a bit away from full harmonization because we haven't even gotten a single acronym down yet. I'm so. waiting for unmanned flying objects. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. There's a new one just launched. <laughs> I know for government, it's often very hard to keep pace with the new technologies and you You've probably been given a, a lot of new things to add to your plate and not necessarily having funding associated with that, which means that you either have to change resources from one thing to another or slow down or what can this industry do to help make things happen more quickly for um, themselves and for you along the way? Um, so. Uh so I'll go back a, a little bit. So you're absolutely right. Um, and I think uh, the FAA is hardly unique uh, in the regulatory uh, world. Uh, the pace of technology is just, uh, it's remarkable how quickly in so many different areas um, technology is advancing. So for regulatory agencies and for, for an aviation agency where, um, you know, innovation or technological improvements were more of a step function with you know, many years in between, and our regulatory process was able to, you know, kind of keep pace with that. Um, now we're, we're just seeing just a, a whole new world where, uh, you know, the innovation's happening very, very quickly, and the costs are cheap, very cheap, so everybody wants to play. Um, but even in, in the traditional world of, of manned aircraft, uh, you know, there were many devices that were being developed that could really uh, offer a safety improvement uh, for, you know, manned airplanes. Um, and, you know, we had to find a, a way to make this technology more available. And so uh, in light sport aircraft, experimental, you know, those users were, were able to, you know, put that equipment on their aircraft, but when we talked about a certified airplane, like a Part 23 airplane, like a, like a Cessna, let's say, uh, because it wasn't an approved device, uh, you know, they couldn't just, uh, you know, an operator of that type of aircraft couldn't just put, uh, like an angle of attack indicator, which could uh, really be, a, which is a big safety uh, mitigator uh, onto their aircraft. So we've really been going more to performance-based uh, regulations uh, so, and we're certainly, you know, looking towards that relative to our UAS rulemaking and 107 mm -hmm. is a reflection of that. Um, I think another area where, you know, you know, the industry could, could really help is standards. So eventually there will be aircraft that need to meet certain airworthiness requirements and whether that's a full type certificate that we we currently issue to the types of planes that a lot of you probably flew here on, um, or it's some other kind of airworthiness certificate or a permit to fly or whatever the mechanism may eventually wind up being. Uh, for various risk levels, and as we climb up that, that relative risk curve, um, there'll have to be some kind of approval, some kind of review. Um, 
and the existence of standards is very, very helpful because it provides a mechanism that an agency, a regulatory agency such as the FAA, can call out and recognize the administrator can find that acceptable, uh, and that can certainly make it much, much easier for us to be able to deal with that. Throughput, as I talked before with uh, exemptions, you know, paperwork really clogs up a, a lot of systems. So the industry, having the industry get together and, and um, put their heads together and sometimes put their competitive uh, 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 nature aside and sit down around the table and agree to a standard that kind of works for everybody could be very, very helpful. Great. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to the room for any questions you might have of these gentlemen. Cynthia, this uh, question goes to you. As a former regulator in the energy industry, do you see these devices as a possible tool for federal agencies to use to augment their inspection and enforcement activities? Well, certainly there's the opportunity there. Um, as in uh, either of these industries, for example, I'm thinking of the offshore where there are thousands of platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, many of which are unmanned, and it's difficult for the government personnel to go out themselves. They have to pay for and hire a helicopter to go to those facilities. There may be opportunities for them to do the same sorts of inspections using a UAV uh, as well as what the companies themselves are doing. So yes, I do see opportunities there. They will probably be behind what everybody else is doing, but yes, there are opportunities, I think. Good morning. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. My name is James Bradbury. I work at the EU delegation as Transport and Energy Councillor. Um, and I see that Bill Schuster has been uh, selected uh, again to run the, uh, the to chair the Transport and Infrastructure Committee in the House. And we know that he pushes an agenda of uh, FAA reform, uh, citing it would be good for uh, safe, efficient, and modern uh, operation of the, of the air transport uh, system. Um, with that in mind, I just wondered what the panel's views would be on how that discussion may uh, affect the regulation and the operation of UAVs, as we know that the reauthorization is coming up next year, so there'll be negotiations on the Hill. Um, that, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I, I would answer it just by saying, uh, you know, we know that there are use cases out there that, uh, you know, really indicate that uh, there will be an increasing role, uh, an increasing presence of, of unmanned aircraft systems in all kinds of environments. Uh, and we've kind of gotten over the, those first crawling stages and picking the low-hanging fruit. Uh, so these operations will more and more start entering you know, more complex environments and certainly more hazardous environments relative to uh, people and property on, on the ground uh, as well as uh, airspace. Um, so the FAA is already taking steps uh, uh, with other agencies, such as NASA, uh, with our test sites, with our Center of Excellence Ashore, to, it's commonly referred to as UTM, UAS Traffic Management Systems. Um, 
So there's much work going on at looking at uh, what is UTM? You know, what are all the components of a UTM system? Uh, how do we interface a UAS traffic management system with our other traffic management systems that we have operating today? Um, how does a, a traffic management system for UAS, you know, how do we establish it? Um, so there, there are a lot of very fundamental questions. Uh, there's questions of, you know, do we need to delegate certain authorities or not? Can we delegate certain authorities or not? So um, it's, it's a very complex area. There's a lot of work going on in it. It's uh, part technological. It's part policy. Um, and I think over the coming years, uh, I, I can't predict what Congress or the new administration will, you know, push us uh, in one way or another. But, um, you know, we recognize that it's an area that has to be addressed regardless um, because the, uh, the, the private sector is, is pushing to, to have that access. Just for the other panelists who may not be aware, Congressman Schuster has been advocating the privatization of the air traffic control system. I don't know that I have the expertise to answer your question. <laughs> I apologize. No, I don't think I do either. It's, um, you know, we, we, we tend to give our input through um, our, our industry organizations, uh, you know, to, to governments everywhere. Uh, we, we set out what we would like to do and, and our desires, uh, and, and we respond to the the frameworks that we're given <laughs> is probably as far as I would go. Very much appreciated. Just a comment, if I may, in reaction to something that John O'Brien said uh, a little bit earlier, with regard to what's going on in the EU. Um, this week, actually, transport ministers met to make a number of decisions on reg regulating drones. So I invite you to uh, go to the readout on that when you get back to your offices. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. Uh, how does the physical capability of the UAV come into these situations of being able to move in a certain way and respond to its signals? Do you want to go first? Or? <laughs> uh, I think I understand the question. Um, we found that because the UAS is a smaller physical footprint than a helicopter, you can definitely do a better inspection. And because <clears throat> it's obviously a lot lighter and is not filled with a, a liquid you know, hydrocarbon fuel, the risk of a, a failure is much less. So um, the smaller, the better. I mean, honestly, I would imagine that probably 80% of our use cases in, in 2017, at least, can be done with aircraft that weigh less than 10 pounds. You know, I know that the rule will allow us to go up to 55 pounds, but if we're just doing visual inspections, usually the smaller the better. Now, now your industry is also looking at actually doing some repairs and movements as well. Yes. Yeah, so we, we've in a in an R and D kind of demo phase, we have we've contemplated some tethering operations where, for to get specific, for running conductors through transmission structures, you usually put a guide wire in there first, and that's done with a helicopter. We've seen video of it being done with an unmanned aircraft, and um, while it might not be a one-to-one -one solution, but there are certain areas like over lakes or uh, over you know, large uh, valleys 
where maybe that UAS would be a better solution. So yeah, I think it gets back to, uh, I mentioned earlier, the mission package. What do you want to actually do? Um, so, so the flight range, assuming some point in the future, we get to a position with non-line of sight operations, uh, but then physically what you want to hang off the device. And a large part of what we want to do today, as Dexter said, is available on the platforms available in the market. But I think there are technologies uh, that certainly we've been looking at uh, and, and some of our peers uh, that currently the package, the mission package is extremely large and heavy. So, you know, if it proves out that that's a real advantage, then we might want to use a vehicle that is, is heavier or slower or... So things will come around about what you want to actually extract from the flight that, that you operate. The other thing is, uh, as we become more sophisticated, we may want to do less flights with more sensors on, uh, and that may increase the mission package complexity because we want to do multiple tasks at the same time. Uh, the same will come about of whether you can wait for the data or whether you want to move into a real-time transmission of data and how you communicate with ground stations and, and then maybe that we will have to put something on the packages um, to actually provide the confidence that the flight is safe beyond line of sight. So, but there's, there's such a range of vehicles out there today, as I'm sure the FAA know that, um, but, it, but it is the degree of control. But the smaller packages now have an incredible degree of, uh, of control and accuracy. I, I'm sorry, but I just just to add on to that. Uh, I mean, I think from an FAA standpoint, uh, you know, our interest is less in what kind of packages they need to to carry and and what their missions are. You know, from a business standpoint, but our, our function is the safety function. Uh, and um, uh, one of the one of the things that we are you know working with UAS today that's a little bit different than you know the type certificated uh, aircraft that people fly in. Um, is, you know, we very much look at the, the operation, the mission, where is it taking place, you know, um, and we use that as part of the framework of, of mitigations. Um, uh, so we definitely are looking at, you know, all these different types of operations, you know, within, you know, that mission uh, and ensuring that these, these aircraft, the, you know, the operation of the aircraft, that they're all done in a way that when you add up all those mitigations, uh, it's sufficient to, to address any safety hazards that have been identified. Another question. Thank you, Suzanne Lemieux with API. Um, I just had a question probably for Rob. I know that the FAA is in a pretty significant effort to modernize the air traffic control system. Can you at just a high level say what how the progress is going and would the UTM be concurrent as that moves forward or would you have to complete one to move to the next? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I don't, I, I work in aviation safety. I don't work in air traffic. So I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, you know, uh, as you know, there's just quite a bit of work going on to next gen and, and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, new capabilities are, are being uh, implemented. Um, UTM, we are really at the early stages. How, what, I mean, I think at this point, if you asked 10 people what UTM is, you'd certainly get 10 different answers. 
you know, and uh, I'm not so sure from my perspective that 10 different answers is necessarily a bad thing. Because um, again, I, I think there's all kinds of environments um, and a UTM system that might be, you know, perfectly suitable for one environment may be overkill uh, in another and vice versa. So um, I think you will be seeing uh, much more from the FAA and NASA and the industry relative to UTM developments. And I think, uh, you know, over the coming years, uh, that'll start to, to bring some clarity. So I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't fully answer that. Good morning. Mark Piazza with Colonial Pipeline. We are an operator of the energy transmission systems that we would like to apply some of these tools, much like Dexter on the electric side. And just a quick question and mostly for you, Rob. I'm just wondering, we have a lot of, you hit the issue earlier of, of trying to integrate these UAS platforms and military, you know, uh, restricted airspace and around airports and things like that. I, I think we're, we've come to the conclusion and, and in some respects would agree that it's not the right tool. I think we talked about that earlier too. It's not the right tool in all cases. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if the FAA would perhaps consider a more open rural space, open airspace, where there are less concerns even from maybe the public, if those would be the opportunities to perhaps, maybe that's where we crawl. I think we've walked. We've done a lot of work under 333s and other 107 at least initially. So maybe those are the opportunities where we could work on technology, the, the integration of the remote sensing and the platforms, which are really, as John said, the mission objective. What are you after? And I think the the topic came up earlier, too, about what's the pie in the sky. I think through applying these technologies and continuing to gather information, I, I think there's a lot of smart people who are going to get really innovative, and we will start to push the envelope a lot farther than where we currently sit as far as how we can really apply these effectively. I'm just wondering if you could comment on whether that's a, is that an opportunity for the industry? Thanks. Uh, yes. Um, and I think our, our Pathfinder 3 program w with BNSF is, is really what we're learning from that is informed. We have a team, it's called our expanded ops team, uh, and they are looking at a number of different types of operations that go beyond part 107, and beyond visual line of sight is primarily that. Uh, we consider the work we're doing with BNSF to definitely be uh, crawling. Uh, I think we're kind of at a fast crawl. Uh, we're learning a tremendous amount. Uh, just. Uh, a little bit more than a year ago, we did our first beyond visual line of sight operations in the lower 48, and that was in New Mexico uh, over a BNSF subdivision. It's called the Clovis subdivision, uh, quite rural. Uh, and we're learning a lot from that. We are looking at, uh, you know, like I said before, command and control. We're looking at surveillance systems. We're looking at uh, uh, navigational performance. Uh, we are simulating and actually having manned aircraft that we're operating as part of our testing, uh, you know, fly through these areas to evaluate the different types of surveillance systems that we are trying out. Um, there's a number of our test sites, New York, North Dakota, to name two. Uh, uh, Virginia Tech, the, the, the Mid-Atlantic States is, is working with a, a power company in Virginia. Uh, so there's a lot of folks looking at all the different foundational you know, uh, elements that are needed to, to make this happen, so. Seems like that's a good way to get people to understand that we can do this effectively. So. Yeah, it, it, it's a great thing, and I, and I think, 
you know, one of the things that, uh, that we get challenged by is there are so many great companies out there and so many smart people. Uh, one of the challenges for us is uh, we have limited bandwidth. You know, there's only so many pathfinders we can do, other special projects we can do. Um, so one of the things we, we really try to encourage is uh, trade associations to kind of, you know, corral their industry. So within the electrical industry, there's Edison Electric Institute, there's EPRI. Um, we, we like to see, you know, certain industries get behind one of those associations so that it's a little bit easier to just corral us together and, you know, kind of herd the cats in a good way, I mean, so. Tom, Atlantic Council. Um, great discussion. My question is for all of you, um, what's the role of the public in this conversation? So there is a great dialogue between industry and regulators going on. Much of the work that you're doing is in, whether it's oil and gas or power, is really in the upstream and midstream, not consumer facing, right? So there's a big public interest, say, in a drone or a UFO, which is even better, uh, bringing a package to your doorstep. but is there a value in bringing in the public debate or bringing the public into this debate? I think about what the Atlantic Council's potential for participating in such a dialogue moving forward. Um, is there a value in terms of helping to articulate the need of industry to have new infrastructure, right? So new infrastructure like the Dakota Access Pipeline, it's huge in public debate. It's not just about NIMBY now, it's about all sorts of other ideological issues. Can this be used to move forward in that regard? Can it be used for um, improving the understanding by the public about the role of regulatory agencies, right? We do have a new political environment coming that talks about scaling back regulation in every way. Um, and then also is there a value in explaining how innovation is changing rapidly? We think about the innovation of technology in the energy sector really in terms of, say, new kinds of electric services or new kinds of generation technologies or new kinds of technology for, say, hydraulic fracturing or deep or arctic drilling. But this is a different way that innovation is playing a big role. Um, how do we make sure public interest is there and how, how, does, how, do, how are you working in that and what are your views about how it could be done better? I think there's a, because <clears throat> there's, Two opportunities we've, we've kind of explored or that come to mind at least is first communicating our message of what we're wanting to use unmanned aircraft for. Um, you know, everybody does pick on Amazon for their pie in the sky idea. And we try to make clear that, you know, that's not really our use case today and, and not really our pie in the sky idea. And I, luckily, I believe that message has, has resonated fairly well. But to something that was mentioned earlier by John, something that I I think is really important is John mentioned if we have an incident, you know, everybody's going to get rolled back and this technology is going to come to a screeching halt. And I don't really foresee, you know, that, I mean, it could, but if you look at the requirements that are put in place for commercial operators, those are above and beyond what is out there for hobbyists and public users. And so I think if we could somehow engage our public to take a responsibility and really embrace, and there are recommendations and rules out there for hobbyist users, um, but, but I think I wouldn't want something to happen in that space that affects this potential value that we can unlock in the commercial space. Uh, 
So any type of education and outreach there, and the FAA does do that, is, is really important. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. Is um, uh, it's about informing the public, and and also listening to their concerns. You know that a lot of people will read articles and 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 will have a concern, maybe because the article is not complete or it doesn't designate that there are different use cases. Um, so I think there there is a, a big opportunity here. Um, and, and I said it earlier, I see a lot of this potential with, with the easy access to small, um, almost being like traffic management and, and learning to be responsible in your greater public awareness in the space you share. Um, and, and, and the idea that those who want to buy small for recreational or, or other uses understand that there are lots of places to fly safely, well, there are a lot of places maybe you should stay away from um, and, and, and make sure that we understand this coexistence with, with the airspace horizontally, vertically or whatever it ends up being designated so that we, we, we move the technology forward safely and widely uh, for all concerned. Um, and and th that is where there probably is still because there is so much out there right now, even for those of us who are involved at an in-depth level with these devices, keeping up is, is a nightmare uh, at times because it, it, it's daily, it, it, it's hourly sometimes that there's a new company, a new R&D, a, a change in regulation, a discussion. You know, for the public, that's got to be a nightmare. You know, and, and they have to rely on certain sources of information. So there probably is a role about, you know, a, a message and a source to go to for, you know, if you really want to know what uh, the pipeline industry is doing with them or the power utility industry or the railroad, you can go here and you can, you can get the facts and so on. And um, so that's probably where I am. I, I think from, from my perspective at the FAA, we are engaged. So, you know, public outreach is just so super critical. Um, and we're really engaged at, you know, a, a lot of different levels. So, uh, you know, we work with the industry relative to packaging. We don't have requirements or regulations that require anybody to put, you know, certain things into their packages, but certainly we want to encourage uh, people that are buying these at the various stores. Uh, it's great when a company like DJI or somebody else puts a little uh, thing in the package that just says, remember, you should register your aircraft, all this other type of stuff. That's great. We do videos, uh, and we have a lot of online materials. And certainly with the, uh, you know, Part 107 and the remote pilot requirements and the testing requirements, uh, that's another way to, you know, engage uh, new aviators, uh, because they are aviators at this point, uh, to get educated and to learn uh, at least the basics. Um, we have our rulemaking process, so the public can... Uh, you know, and it's not just the FAA, but across the government can, can certainly play within that rulemaking process, whether it's uh, requesting a new kind of rule or whether it's um, submitting public comments to an NPRM or something like that. That's another avenue for communication. But two of the uh, newest things that we're engaged with is the, the DAC, the Drone Advisory Council, which is uh, really represented by 
you know, senior leadership of some of the major uh, players in this UAS uh, enterprise. Uh, and they meet, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe quarterly. Um, and so that's, that's a very important avenue. And even more recently, we've stood up at what we call the UAS safety team. Uh, for those of you that might be familiar with something called uh, CAS, the Commercial Aviation Safety Team, or GAJSC, the uh, General Aviation Joint Safety Council. Um, this consists of uh, the U.S. safety team is, is really open to anyone, but it's really a space where we pull the community together of operators to look at what's happening out there uh, in the environment. For the FAA to fix things, it takes time, and sometimes things can be more easily fixed when the industry and the user community gets together and just adopts uh, best practices or things on their own. Uh, that's what we've been using for CAS to improve commercial aviation safety. It's been ex extremely effective, and that's the approach we're taking now with this emerging uh, UAS um, uh, operations. I think we may have time for one more question. Yeah, right there. Uh, good morning. This is a question for John, actually, and it's, it's kind of a two-part question. You mentioned earlier that um, you were collecting data and using it to inform your decisions, maybe make course corrections or, or that sort of thing. And I wondered um, what, if you can give us an example of something that you've learned. And then uh, the second part of the question is, are, are you involved with, um, you know, your, your community uh, in, in sharing that information? So, um yeah, I mean, um, just um, as part of R and D. I mean, uh, um, look, you know, you, you use a visual technique to record data, and now you understand. I've got all these images, but you know, they're just images at the moment. You have to progress to what do I make a decision about? So what we've been looking at is is algorithms that automatically grade. They take expert opinion, automatically grade the images, and then you can look at large structures and you get a ranked report. So you know which areas to go address first. So it changes the decision process. So now instead of sending people out to look at 5,000 areas, I still know I need to look at 5,000 areas, but I know which are the first 25, which are the most critical, uh, so, so to rank. In terms of sharing, um, personally, I don't see this as a competitive advantage space. So in my R&D portfolio, I've worked very hard to leverage with other partners to work as joint collaboration. Um, and and we, we share a lot of data. Um, uh, our industry um, leaders, uh, the American Petroleum Institute, have, have formed a committee that allows us to start to share together. The Pipeline Research Council International, uh, which uh, I'm he very heavily involved with. We've done a lot of joint industry programs there. We share that immediately with all 32 operator pipeline members of there. Um, so yeah, we, we are doing as much as we want. API have a panel in January in Galveston on this topic. Um, I go to Europe. Uh, yeah, we've, we've discussed a lot. We've brought things from Europe that they're a little bit more advanced in the, than maybe North America has been. Um, so 
uh, yeah, there is wide sharing here. In the environmental space, there's a massive amount of sharing going on. Uh, the Petroleum Environment Research Forum has shared a lot of data. So there, there is, but again, technology is moving fast and there are also a lot of people in our industry. <laughs> so reach, re, you know, I, I probably think I do a great job, but I probably only reach five or 10% of them right now um, because you know, they're busy with their jobs as well. I help, help me thank uh, Dexter Lewis from Southern Company, John O'Brien from Chevron, and Rob Pappas for FAA for this insightful panel on UASs or UFOs. Thank you. Thank you.